0: Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of congregational humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Today, I want to start out with A little game, if that's okay? All right, you guys like games, right? Yeah, good, good. Um, So what do these three things have in common? Uh, Stars and galaxies, okay, that's the first thing. Okay, what is stars and galaxies? This is a deep field image from the James Webb Telescope, by the way. Minerals, okay, different kinds of minerals. And third, living organisms, okay? Yeah, lots of color there. Um, what do these things, things have in common? We'll put them all on the one slide. Oh, sorry, go ahead. They're made of elements. Made of elements, excellent. What else? What are they? What are they? Colorful, yes, yes. Bright, Bright. Bright. sometimes. Energy changing, Energy changing. okay. Yeah. We're, getting, we're getting there. Variety, yeah. Oh, what are they? Labyrinth vibrant oh yes absolutely absolutely yes all of those things are absolutely true and i'm gonna leave you in suspense for a minute while i uh explain why i put those three things together so the uh next slide here has just the first page of an article from the october issue of the proceedings of the national academy of sciences caused a bit of excitement on a behavioral psychology email list that I'm on. And uh, the authors state, I can turn my own page here, physical laws such as the laws of motion, gravity, electromagnetism, and thermodynamics codify the general behavior of varied macroscopic natural processes across space and time. Does that make sense? Macroscopic, like not microscopic. Things get weird when you get down to the quantum levels, so we're not talking about that. But big things, they obey these natural laws, and we propose that an additional, hitherto unarticulated law is required to characterize familiar macroscopic phenomena of our complex, evolving universe. It's kind of cool, isn't it? And accordingly, we propose a law of increasing functional information. The functional information of a system will increase. In other words, the system will evolve if many different configurations of the system undergo selection for one or more functions. In other words, a law of evolution. How cool is that? I don't know about you, but it's not every day that I hear about a new law of the universe. <laughs> so let's take a look back and explain, look at how, how these things are all part of evolution. They're all systems made up of smaller units that can combine in many different ways, whether we're talking about atoms combining into um, you know, m- making up the elements within stars. Stars creating more uh, massive elements, minerals, combinations of of these elements in uh, crystalline structures. And then uh, they all have. Oh, sorry. And then living organisms, of course, DNA, uh, different combinations of proteins. Right. All of all of these things, different con- configurations. Uh, enhance the functioning of these systems. They persist. They have resilience, creativity. These are paraphrases, by the way. They did use more technical language in there. But those things will tend to allow that system to continue. Isn't that amazing? But what is it that would also appeal to behavioral psychology nerds? As you can guess, most of the time we're talking about human behavior and its context, not so much about stars and minerals and animals. But there's one section later in the evolution paper that just touches on why psychologists get excited about that topic. The authors say there exist selection pressures favoring systems that can open-endedly invent new functions, selection pressures for novelty generation. This is what I paraphrased as creativity. We don't really talk about creativity when it comes to stars and minerals, safer to say novelty generation, but you get the idea and they continue. The rise of art, literature, music, games, and technology In human culture may be reflections of our inherent desire to experiment with our world, to discover new ways of thinking, being, and communing with one another. They're talking about cultural evolution, the evolution of our ideas, behaviors, our social structures. They go on. Although it may be Argued that human-like innovation has negatively has negative adaptive value as evinced by flirtations with self-inflicted collapse It's never good to start a sentence by saying We keep almost destroying ourselves, but So far our evolutionary success as a species may be attributed in large part to our curiosity When success is in quotes, it doesn't necessarily feel like a compliment, does it? But again, they continue. Perhaps it will be humanity's ability to learn, invent, and adopt new collective modes of being that will lead to its long-term persistence as a planetary phenomenon. Well, that's a relief, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) The authors open up this huge topic with massive implications, and then they conclude, however, in the light of these conditions, we suspect that the general principles of selection and function discussed here may also apply to the evolution of symbolic and social systems, but more detailed speculation is beyond the scope of the present paper. In other words, this all, <laughs> this all, <laughs> this all may de- determine the fate of our very existence, but we, we digress. They dangle this huge topic and then they put it back in the box. Why? Why do they do that? After all, it isn't that hard to recognize human ideas, behaviors, and social structures as evolutionary processes. Human cultures and societies are made up of smaller units that recombine in many configurations. They're selected for any variety of functions and the more functional configurations tend to persist and replicate over time. So why don't these authors wanna dive too far into this important topic? Well, they might have a good reason. The history of applying evolutionary ideas to human culture doesn't have the best reputation for accurate or objective scholarship. We all know the Nazi Germany and Nazi German interpretation of fitness and where their logic took them. Even after. World War II and the Holocaust subtler forms of racial supremacy continued to persist and seep into supposedly scientific theories, including those that might be relevant to cultural evolution. In a widely cited essay, Garrett Hardin coined the phrase the tragedy of the commons for what he saw as the inevitable overuse of shared finite resources by an ever expanding population. The only uh, solutions he could see were the Cold War options of market privatization or rigid government intervention. But as political scientist, Mato Mildenberger wrote recently, people who revisit Hardin's essay are in for a surprise. It's six pages are filled with fear mongering, subheadings proclaim, Freedom, that freedom to breed is intolerable. It opines at length about the benefits if children of improvident parents are allowed to starve to death. A few paragraphs later, Hardin writes, <clears throat> if we love the truth, if we love the truth, we must openly deny the validity of the universal De- declaration of human rights and he's speaking specifically about the right to freely make reproductive decisions. Note two, the title of Mildenberger's response to Hardin's essay, the real tragedy was not the commons, but the fact that the noble idea of the commons had come to be regarded as a tragedy and used to justify the dehumanization of those deemed less worthy. And yet, even if the tragedy of the commons is more about superiority than science, don't we see enough examples of dysfunction to be skeptical about the applicability of the law of increasing functional information when it comes to culture, human culture? After all, where's the increasing function in our anemic response to environmental catastrophe? Where is increasing function in the seeming seeming mutual death spiral of violence in Israel and Palestine? A grinding war in Ukraine? Not to mention dysfunction in government and flirtations with autocracy in the midst of the longest-running democratic experiment. Is anyone consoled if we say the arc of history is long, but it bends towards function? (laughs) A few weeks ago, I talked about how I found my effort to avoid the news was getting in the way of my values. But then it can and often does go the other way, right? We can get oversaturated with contemplating the problems of the world and Feel frozen with despair and anger, which some of you mentioned, and which also can be unhelpful. I don't know about you, but it often seems like to get back to hope, I at least have to put down the problems of the world for a minute. Refocus on where I can make a difference, where I can move towards increased functioning now. For me, I'm fortunate enough to work in settings that help me reconnect with hope. My clients remind me that however difficult and faltering the process, we humans do tend to learn and grow over time. A little harder to see when I'm looking at myself, but I have to deal with myself more than once a week. (laughs) And I'll say that working with all of you gives me hope. I experienced this often, but especially a few weeks ago when we came together in a spirit of mindfulness to look at the mix of emotions that the news about Israel and Gaza was bringing up for us. We acknowledged some of the ways that we can respond to that our times are unhelpful. It's interesting to look back and see at that moment. Some of us were finding our efforts to ignore the news unhelpful. Some of us were feeling oversaturated, stuck in anger or despair, can go either way, right? And maybe it is for you now, one way or the other. But whatever our experience, we look together at some of our shared values. We recalled some of the ways that we want to live that we can know can move us and the world towards functioning in the long run. And then we started to creatively explore what new ways we could respond to the situation that were in line with our shared values. Novelty generation in search of new patterns that increase function. For us individually as a community and hopefully, ultimately, the world. This is nothing new. Humans We're doing it all the time, we're always evolving, we're always learning and changing. But we can be more and more consciously intentional about moving towards the ways we want to function. Again, we can do this as individuals, as communities, hopefully, ultimately, maybe globally. And to the degree that we can take action, find things that work. We can call this, as some do, conscious cultural evolution. We can consciously take part in the process that has shaped the universe and life itself. It's pretty cool to think about, right? I've spoken before about the work of evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson, pictured here with the late... E.O. Wilson and a Darwin impersonator. Not the best I've seen. (laughs) Both Wilsons, they're not related. They both did pioneering work exploring how evolution is not just about competition. This red and tooth and claw understanding of natural selection. That is part of it. But evolution can ultimately lead to greater and greater cooperation. Generosity. Because at the level of groups, altruism works better than selfishness. Selfishness still works in a way, but it has to be constrained for the group. As you see a quote, from David Sloan Wilson, a group of cooperators can robustly outcompete a group whose members cannot cohere. E.O. Wilson famously looked at the extremely successful cooperative behavior seen in ants, who, like humans, inhabit the whole planet. And when it comes to humans, there's other evidence that cooperation works. I've also spoken before about the person who would demonstrate the truth about the commons. A woman who was willing to learn, often from the very people that Garrett Hardin didn't think could be trusted to share common pool resources and shouldn't be allowed to reproduce freely. In 2009, Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize in Economics for her work demonstrating that groups of people throughout the world regularly find ways to develop systems for managing commonly held resources as long as they work together to build necessary social structures, as long as their novelty generation can find structures that can address several core design principles. They're listed there. This is a list that was adapted by her and uh, David Sloan Wilson and modified to be applicable to a broad range of different kinds of groups. As you can see, they're quite simple strong group identity and sense of purpose, fair distribution of costs and benefits, fair and inclusive decision-making, monitoring agreed behaviors, graduated sanctions for misbehaviors. Also have to be avenues for fast and fair conflict resolution. Ostrom was also an expert in polycentric governance, so the last two there are in that regard context-specific specific groups should have authority to self-govern and have appropriate relations with other groups as reflected in those previous principles. It's really simple stuff, right? Maybe even common sense. But Ostrom's c- contribution was to demonstrate empirically that these principles are broadly functional. They show up again and again because they work. Also testifying on the side of cooperation is the journalist, Robert Wright. I was recently reading his book, Non-Zero, which is basically a historical exploration of this idea of evolution that we're discussing here. Wright reviews the game theory concept of non-zero-sum interactions or win-win scenarios. His whole point is that over the long run, both biological and cultural evolution favor these kinds of interactions because they are more stable, more functional than zero-sum or win-lose interactions. And both Wright and David Sloan Wilson are cautiously fascinated with the Jesuit priest and paleontologist Pierre Terre de Chardin. More than using evolution to reinforce existing social hierarchy, Chardin saw evolution through his Catholic religious lens and imagined it pointing to some divine ideal world. Wright explains, Terre de Chardin in particular stressed the evolution over the millennia of ever more vast and complex social structures. His extrapolations from this trend were prescient. Writing in the middle of the 20th century, he dwelt on telecommunications and the globalization, it abets. Before these subjects were all the rage. And Wright notes that uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, was looking at, at Teilhard. You know, he came up with this idea of the global village. This concept, Wright continues, of the noosphere, the thinking envelope of the earth. Again, think in terms of telecommunications, the internet, ideas going back and forth. Teilhard even anticipated in a vague way the internet more than a decade before the invention of the microchip. Chardin saw that as the world becomes more and more connected, there is at least the potential for humanity to function more and more as a single community a global commons, perhaps even a global organism of sorts. Neither Wright nor Wilson share Chardin's idealistic sense of the inevitability of global unity, what he called the omega point. But like the authors of the evolution paper we looked at before, they see our best hope in that direction. Perhaps it will be humanity's ability to learn, invent, and adopt new collective modes of being that will lead to its long-term persistence as a planetary phenomenon. I can't see a better way to spend our time here than to use our values to try to consciously evolve towards a global commons. keep trying to find things that function in the long run. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.